Chapter 10, Part 1 of The Many-Sided Franklin by Paul Lester Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter 10, The Humorist, Part 1. Nothing more impresses the student of American history in tracing the psychological development of the people than the absence of humor in the first hundred and fifty years following the settlement of the country. The English literature on which the colonists had been bred showed no lack of the comic muse, and indeed unquestionably proves a greater appreciation of wit and humor than its present-day successor. In America, however, either because the immigrants had been recruited from the unfortunate and the religiously austere, or because the hardness of the conditions resulted in a sadness which tinctured the lives of the people, there seems to have been a practical extinction of all sense of the humorous. Notable as Franklin is for many things, perhaps his most remarkable attribute is that the future historian of the now famous American humor must begin its history with the first publication of Poor Richard. This does not mean that the great American's sense of wit and fun began with the publication of his almanac. In the letters of Mrs. Duguid, written when he was 16 years old, he shows already a humorous turn of mind, and anyone who has delved in the extraordinary mortuary lubrications, which were once as popular in New England as a modern novel is today, will appreciate the wittiness of the following extract from one of her letters. Quote, a receipt to make a New England funeral elegy. For the title of your elegy, of these you may have enough ready-made to your hands, but if you should choose to make it yourself, you must be sure not to omit the words etatis sui, which will beautify it exceedingly. For the subject of your elegy, take one of your neighbors who has lately departed this life. It is no great matter at what age the party died, but it will be best if he went away suddenly, being killed, drowned, or froze to death. Having chosen the person, take all his virtues, excellencies, etc., and if he have not enough, you may borrow some to make up a sufficient quantity. To these add his last words, dying expressions, etc., if they are to be had. Mix all these together, and be sure you strain them well. Then season all with a handful or two of melancholy expressions, such as dreadful, deadly, cruel, cold death, unhappy fate, weeping eyes, etc. Having mixed all these ingredients well, put them into the empty skull of some young Harvard, but in case you have ne'er a one at hand, you may use your own. There let them ferment for the space of a fortnight, and by that time they will be incorporated into a body, which take out, and having prepared a sufficient quantity of double rhymes, such as power, flower, quiver, shiver, grieve us, leave us, tell you, excel you, expeditions, physicians, fatigue him, intrigue him, etc., you must spread all upon paper. And if you can procure a scrap of Latin to put at the end, it will garnish it mightily. Then, having affixed your name at the bottom, with a maestis composuit, you will have an excellent elegy. N.B. This receipt will serve when a female is the subject of your elegy, provided you borrow a greater quantity of virtues, excellencies, etc. End quote. Nor is this the only indication that even as a lad he possessed a keen appreciation of humor. When nearly eighty-something, he relates, quote, 
put me in mind of a violent high church factor resident in boston when i was a boy he had bought upon speculation a connecticut cargo of onions which he flattered himself he might sell again to great profit but the price fell and they lay upon hand he was heartily vexed with his bargain especially when he observed they began to grow in the store he had filled with them he showed them one day to a friend here they are said he and they are growing too i damn them every day but i think they are like the presbyterians the more i curse them the more they grow in london he relates that he was popular with his fellow journeyman printers because of quote, my being esteemed a pretty good raguette that is a jocular verbal satirist end quote. His natural tendency to humor is shown very clearly by the columns of the Pennsylvania Gazette from the time that Franklin assumed its publication. I am about courting a girl I have had but little acquaintance with, he makes a correspondent write. How shall I come to a knowledge of her faults and whether she has the virtues I imagine she has? Commend her among her female acquaintance, advises Franklin. Elsewhere, as if to put his joke in concrete form, he wrote, Daphius, says Cleo, has a charming eye. What pity tis her shoulder is awry. Aspasia's shape indeed, but then her air, T'would task a conjurer to find beauty there. Without a but, Hortensia she commends, The first of women and the best of friends, Owns her in person, wit, fame, virtue bright. But how comes this to pass? She died last night. He makes another correspondent begging him to let the prettiest creature in this place know, by publishing this, that if it was not for her affectation, she would be absolutely irresistible. And in the next issue, he prints six denials of the charge from as many different women. In the same vein, he writes the paper a letter from Alice Addertung, who describes herself as a young girl of about thirty-five who has no care upon my head of getting a living and therefore find it in my duty as well as inclination to exercise my talent at censure for the good of my country folks. Shall I discover my secret? if i have never heard ill of some person i always impute it to defective intelligence for there are none without their faults no not one if she be a woman i take the first opportunity to let all her acquaintance know that i have heard that one of the handsomest or best men in town has said something in praise either of her beauty her wit her virtue or her good management if you know anything of human nature you perceive that this naturally introduces a conversation turning upon all her failings past present and to come to the same purpose and with the same success i cause every man of reputation to be praised before his competitors in love business or esteem on account of any particular qualification near the times of election if i find it necessary i commend every candidate before some of the opposite party listening attentively to what is said of him in answer but commendations in this latter case are not always necessary and should be used judiciously of late years i need only observe what they said of one another freely and having for the help of memory taken account of all informations and accusations received whoever peruses my writings after my death may happen to think that during a certain time the people of pennsylvania chose into all their offices of honor and trust the various knaves fools and rascals in the whole province End quote. 
it must not be inferred that all his fooling was at the expense of the gentler sex a drinker's dictionary held up a masculine weakness to scorn he guyed a pair of would-be duelists mercilessly and in a little poem ridiculed a second mannish extravagance quote, the following lines are dedicated to the service of our fair readers which perhaps may give them an useful hint how to behave upon the like occasion the fright myrtle unsheathed his shining blade and fixed its point against his breast then gazed upon the wondering maid and thus his dire resolve expressed since cruel fair with cold disdain you still return my raging love thought is but madness life is pain and thus at once i both remove oh stay one moment chloe said and trembling haste to the door here betty quick a pale dear maid this madman else will stain the floor in every way the editor sought to inject a vein of humor into his columns a sample news item runs quote, an unhappy man one sturgis upon some difference with his wife determined to drown himself in the river and she kind wife went with him it seems to see it faithfully performed and accordingly stood by silent and unconcerned during the whole transaction he jumped in near carpenter's wharf but was timely taken out again before what he came about was thoroughly affected so that they were both obliged to return home as they came and put up for that time with the disappointment end quote. in another issue printing the fact that a bucks county farmer had his pewter buttons melted off his waistband by a flash of lightning he adds the comment tis well nothing else thereabouts was made of pewter how he made jokes of his own typographical errors and how he joked his fellow editors has been told already and his quickness to seize an opportunity is shown by a very typical reply to one of these in a letter addressed to himself Quote, mr franklin i am the author of a copy of verses in the last mercury it was my real intention to appear open and not basely with my vizard on attack a man who had fairly unmasked accordingly i subscribed my name at full length in my manuscript sent to my brother b d but he for some incomprehensible reason inserted the two initial letters only viz b l tis true every syllable of the performance discovers me to be the author but as i meet with much censure on the occasion i request you to inform the public that i did not desire my name should be concealed and that the remaining letters are o c k h e a d his irresistible inclination to screw a joke out of everything is illustrated by the scrapes he got himself into with his advertisers employed to print an announcement of the sailing of a ship he added an n b of his own to the effect that among the passengers quote, no sea hens nor black gowns will be admitted on any terms end quote. some of the clergy properly incensed withdrew their subscriptions from the gazette yet this did not cure him of the tendency and he was quickly offending again one alexander miller peruke maker in second street philadelphia by advertisement acquainted his customers that he intended to quote, leave off the shaving business after the twenty second of august next end quote. 
and the paper having an overplus of space, Franklin proceeded to tag on to this notification a humorous article on barbers, who, he pointed out, were peculiarly fitted for politics, not because of that particular part of their calling, but because they were also adept shavers and trimmers, Quote, which will naturally lead us to consider the near relation which subsists between shaving, trimming, and politics, end quote. And congratulating the people upon his advertised retirement of the barber, he continued, I am of opinion that all possible encouragement ought to be given to examples of this kind, end quote. It is not surprising that the innocent advertiser resented this and the printer was called upon to explain. I had no animosity, Franklin wrote, against the person whose advertisement I made the motto of my paper, and he expressed surprise that my paper on shavers and trimmers in the last gazette should be generally condemned, which he at first imputed to a, quote, want of taste and relish for pieces of that force and beauty which none but a university-bred gentleman can produce, end quote. But upon advice of friends, quote, whose judgment I could depend upon, quote. he thought it best to express regret and promise reformation. A pleasant quality of this love of humor was that Franklin was ever as ready to joke at his own expense as at another's. On Thursday last, the Gazette informed its readers, a certain P-R, tis not customary to give names at length on these occasions, walking carefully in clean clothes over some barrels of tar on Carpenter's Wharf, the head of one of them unluckily gave way, and let a leg of him in above the knee. Whether he was upon the catch at the time, we cannot say, but T is certain he caught a tartar. T was observed, he sprang out again right briskly, verifying the common saying, as nimble as a bee in a tar-barrel. You must know there are several sorts of bees. Tis true he was no honey bee, nor yet a humble bee, but a boo bee he may be allowed to be, namely B.F. So, to teach a moral, he wrote his fable of the whistle, telling of how, quote, when I was a child of seven years old, my friends on a holiday filled my pocket with coppers. I went directly to a shop where they sold toys for children, and being charmed with the sound of a whistle that I met by the way in the hands of another boy, I voluntarily offered and gave all my money for one. I then came home and went whistling all over the house, much pleased with my whistle, but disturbing the family." My brothers and sisters and cousins, understanding the bargain I had made, told me I had given four times as much for it as it was worth, put me in mind of what good things I might have bought with the rest of the money, and laughed at me so much for my folly that I cried with vexation, and the reflection gave me more chagrin than the whistle gave me pleasure. This, however, was afterwards of use to me, the impression continuing on in my mind, so that often, when I was tempted to buy some unnecessary thing, I said to myself, Don't give too much for the whistle, and I saved my money. End quote. Better still was an incident which proves him truly an incorrigible joker. Two nights ago, he states, being about to kill a turkey by the shock from two large glass jars containing as much electrical fire as forty common files, I inadvertently took the hole through my own arms and body by receiving the fire from the united top wires with one hand, while the other held a chain connected to the outsides of both jars. 
the company present whose talking to me and to one another i suppose occasioned my inattention to what i was about say that the flash was very great and the crack as loud as a pistol yet my senses being instantly gone i neither saw the one nor heard the other nor did i feel the stroke on my hand i felt what i know not how well to describe a universal blow throughout my whole body from head to foot which seemed within as well as without after which the first thing i took notice of was a violent quick shaking of my body which gradually remitting my sense as gradually returned yet the moment he became conscious enough to realize what had occurred he remarked well i meant to kill a turkey and instead i nearly killed a goose as he made fun of his errors so he did of his triumphs poverty poetry and new titles of honor make men ridiculous he once wrote and in communicating to a friend the fact that the king of france had sent him his thanks and compliments for his useful discoveries in electricity he prefaced it with the story from the tattler of a girl who was observed to grow suddenly proud and none could guess the reason till it came to be known that she had got on a pair of new silk garters lest you should be puzzled to guess the cause when you observe anything of the kind in me i think i will not hide my new garters under my petticoats but take the freedom to show them to you but his supreme self-joking was his turning his own physical torture into something to furnish his friend's amusement you know he wrote one of these that madame legout has given me good advice often and while suffering from the disease he penned his dialogue between franklin and the gout one of his most delightful pieces of persiflage of which unfortunately owing to its length only the beginning and the end can be quoted quote, midnight twenty second october seventeen eighty franklin eh, ooh, eh, what have i done to merit these cruel sufferings the gout many things you have ate and drank too freely and too much indulged those legs of yours in their indolence franklin who is it that accuses me the gout it is i even i the gout franklin what my enemy in person the gout no not your enemy franklin i repeat it my enemy for you would not only torment my body to death but ruin my good name you reproach me as a glutton and a tippler now all the world that knows me will allow that i am neither the one nor the other the gout the world may think as it pleases it is always very complacent to itself and sometimes to its friends but i very well know that the quantity of meat and drink proper for a man who takes a reasonable degree of exercise would be too much for another who never takes any franklin ah how tiresome you are the gout well then to my office it should not be forgotten that i am your physician there franklin oh what a devil of a physician the gout how ungrateful you are to say so is it not i in the character of your physician have saved you from the palsy dropsy and apoplexy one or other of which would have done for you long ago but for me franklin 
i submit and thank you for the past but entreat the discontinuance of your visits for the future for in my mind one had better die than be cured so dolefully permit me just to hint that i have also not been unfriendly to you i never feed physician or quack of any kind to enter the list against you if then you do not leave me to my repose it may be said you are ungrateful too the gout i can scarcely acknowledge that as any objection as to quacks i despise them they may kill you indeed but cannot injure me and as to regular physicians they are at last convinced that the gout in such a subject as you are is no disease but a remedy and wherefore cure a remedy but to our business there oh oh for heaven's sake leave me and i promise faithfully never more to play at chess but to take exercise daily and live temperately the gout i know you too well you promise fair but after a few months of good health you will return to your old habits your fine promises will be forgotten like the forms of last year's clouds let us then finish the account and i will go but i leave you with an assurance of visiting you again at a proper time and place for my object is your good and you are sensible now that i am your real friend one very noticeable quality of all franklin's humor is that poke fun as he would at himself he rarely did so at others not once in twenty was his humor aimed at an individual and he appears in this to have regarded poor richard's warnings that thou canst not joke an enemy into a friend but thou mayest a friend into an enemy that joke went out and brought home his fellow and they two began to quarrel and that he makes a foe who makes a jest as need scarcely be said it is poor richard's almanac which embodies the bulk of the humor originated by franklin in his day the great source of profit to every printer was the almanac which was issued yearly and which was the vade mecum in every household that could spare the necessary two or three pence annually and so when franklin set up his press he arranged with thomas godfrey a local scientist of some note to furnish him with the copy for an annual issue presently however mrs godfrey by her matchmaking schemes became the discordia as already told if the young printer took philosophically the broken heart the resulting broken friendship was more serious for he not only lost godfrey as his tenant but the fellow math carried his manuscript to a rival printer and franklin was left in the lurch for his copy in this predicament he apparently wrote his own almanac but knowing that his name would hardly give it currency among readers who still looked upon it as dealing in magic witchcraft and astrology he adopted that of richard saunder an english philomath of the seventeenth century of great popularity but since quite eclipsed by his more popular western namesake under this name therefore the initial number was issued in the latter part of december seventeen thirty two when in spite of the late publication three impressions were called for by the popular demand and from that time it was not merely the most esteemed almanac in pennsylvania but had a sale as far north as rhode island and as far south as the carolinas and indeed it was the first american publication which broke through colonial boundaries the secret of its success was its humor 
the calculations were no more accurate the poetry no better nor the printing clearer than were those of the half a dozen competitors which then came from the pennsylvania presses but in the colorless life of the frontier settlements the advent of this little pamphlet of a dozen leaves was one of the events of the year and it is not strange that the sense and nonsense of poor richard which afterward gained such a place and name in the literary centres of europe should surpass its competitors and keep the presses busy printing the ten thousand copies annually called for the humour was everywhere in the advertisement that announced its publication in the title page and preface sprinkled in the calendar the weather predictions the eclipses and the prophecies here for instance is the way he announced the eclipses in the year seventeen thirty four there will be but two the first, April 22nd, 18 minutes after 5 in the morning. The second, October 15th, 36 minutes past 1 in the afternoon. Both of the sun, and both, like Mrs. S.'s modesty and old neighbor Scrapeall's money, invisible. Or like a certain storekeeper late of blank county, not to be seen in these parts. Not the least element of the popularity was due to the controversies with his brother Philomaths, which Franklin originated by his jocose remarks upon them in the prefaces of Poor Richard. With delightful humor and satire, Mr. Saunders, in different issues, gravely predicts the death of one of his rivals, Titan Leeds, and the reconciliation of a second, John German, to the Catholic Church neither of these gentlemen though able to predict weather twelve months in advance could draw from the stars franklin's purpose and so they fell into his trap and in the prefaces to their respective issues they replied to him with anger and strong words leeds called him a fool and a liar and a conceited scribbler which german echoed in no minor key by stating that franklin's prediction was altogether false and untrue and that he was one of baal's false prophets this was just what Franklin expected, and he used his opportunity to the utmost. With wit and humor, he fanned the flames of controversy to which his rivals replied with bad language and adjectives. He made every reader of Leeds and German hear of and wish to see poor Richard, and once seen, it was a very clodpage who could not discriminate between texts, one of which has been translated into a dozen languages, while the other has barely survived on the shelves of the antiquary. This ends chapter 10, part 1.